0: MSW Media.
1: This is Ed Lee, and you're listening to What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn Podcast. Thank you. We'll pour yourself
2: a glass, sit for a spell it's time to have some fun let's do a little thinking some picking and a drinking but
1: this is what we're drinking with and
0: Thank you, Kali King. Hey everybody, this is Dan Dunn. And what we're drinking today is a Manhattan. That's right, a Manhattan. I'll tell you all about it in just a little bit why I'm drinking the Manhattan, but uh well, I'll tell you right now. We're, we're doing it because on this episode, I'm gonna dive into five classic cocktails. I'm gonna give you the skinny on five classic cocktails. Everything you ever needed to know or didn't know that you needed to know about these classic cocktails you're going to get from me today on this show. Um, What else? I want to thank everybody uh, who gave us a listen, uh, a previous episode with Matthew McConaughey and Neil Everett from sports center and wild Turkey master distiller, Eddie Russell. It was our most listened to episode to date we, it was our, our 21st episode, and it was our most listened to. We launched on June 18th. It took us this long to reach the top of the mountain. Well, we're not there yet, but we're getting there. So thank you for that. And uh, if you want to check out, I put some pictures of Matthew on my Instagram, at the imbiber, T-H-E-I-M-B-I-B-E-R. Other news, I was on, uh, I guessed it, on the Adam Carolla show. I do that fairly often. I was on... Last week, you can check that out. I brought in four whiskeys that Adam and Bald Brian and Gina Grad and I all enjoyed. Uh, Whistlepig, Blackened, Maker's Mark 46, and The Burning Chair by Savage and Cook. Savage and Cook is Dave Finney's distiller. Dave Finney is famous for orange swift wines. Uh, So there you go. Check that out on Corolla. I'd really... Had a good time, and I think you will too. A little bit later in the show, as we are wont to do, I'm going to tell you about some new products. And I'm going to have a chat, a couple of chats actually, one with uh, Chef Michael Valtaggio and Adam Sobel, the two of them. Very famous chefs. And then right after that, a quick chat with another famous chef by the name of Ed Lee. And I'm going to tell you about those guys when we get to the interview. So what else? Sorry, well, you know what? I think we should dive in and um, and get going with these five classic cocktails I want to explain to you. So the first cocktail we have up, and it's what I'm drinking right now, is a Manhattan. Uh, the difficulty level of making this drink, I'd put it at easy, okay? So, brief history. An off-repeated origin story of the Manhattan says that it was unveiled in 1874 at the Manhattan Club in New York uh, during a party thrown by Winston Churchill's mother. However, in his essential book, Imbibe, uh, spirit sage David Wondrich alleges this tale to be only partially true at best. Apparently, at the time of the alleged birth of this legendary cocktail in the Big Apple, Lady Churchill was in England birthing a future prime minister of some significance. So however the Manhattan came to exist, there's little arguing Wondrich's sentiment that when properly built, it's, quote, the only cocktail that can slug it out toe-to-toe with the martini. Right on, Wondrich. And uh, like the island whose name it shares, this drink is sweet, strong, eternally cool, and retains a dangerous edge course, it's made in a coupe glass. Uh, To make it, you're going to need that. You're going to need a bar spoon and a strainer. Um, I would say that a proper Manhattan should be made with rye, and don't let your bourbon-loving friends tell you differently. That said, you should make it with whatever makes you happy. Um, I'm going to give you a recipe that is from the seminal 1906 term uh, tome, Louis's Mixed Drinks, by legendary mixologist Louis Muckensturm. Of the New York Muckensturms, that's a awesome fucking name, Louis Muckensturm. I want to change my name to Louis Muckensturm. Okay, so this is a this is Louis Muckensturm's recipe. Uh, you might find it a tad sweet. Uh, we'll see. Okay, so uh, you're gonna go two ounces of rye whiskey. In this particular case, I'm drinking smooth Ambler. Uh, it's age 70 years I just really like that right? Seven years 70 years it's older than Louis Muckensturm. it's age 7 years it's $50 a bottle it's a fantastic uh, rye smooth amber and then one ounce of Italian vermouth I'm using Carpano Antica formula which is just the best of the best in my opinion uh, two uh, two dashes of orange bitters and this I use Reagan's orange bitters my old friend Gary Regan makes that and then a dash of angostura bitters i'd use angostura for the bitters okay so you're going to take all those ingredients you're going to stir them with ice strain it into a chilled cocktail glass you can serve it with a twist or a maraschino cherry i use the cherry for this the dirty sue and i love it okay again you might find this a tad sweet if you do uh you just dial back the vermouth a little bit to remedy that okay um So, uh, I guess, uh, again, sweet favorite. I say on the strength scale, let's give it a one to five on the strength scale. I would say the Manhattan is about a four, okay? So, there you go. Next up in our classic cocktail list, the French 75. Another easy cocktail to make. Some history on this one. It may sound dainty, but this deceptively potent marriage of gin and bubbly is named after a giant gun used by the French in World War I. Was also a favorite of one of the previous century's most celebrated macho men, Ernest Miller Hemingway. Indeed, the French 75 shares with Hemingway a well-earned reputation for depositing many a careless tippler on his ass. Its origins are contested. Some believe it to be the only true classic cocktail invented in America during Prohibition. Others have pegged it as a Victorian-era fave. Uh, After doing extensive research, the uh, aforementioned David Wondrich concluded that the combination of gin and champagne dates to the earliest mists of cocktail history, and that whoever invented the French 75 didn't really invent anything at all. All he or she did was give it a name. This one also goes in a coupe glass. You're going to use two ounces of London dry gin, a half ounce of lemon juice, a teaspoon of sugar, some dry sparkling wine, chilled. You shake the gin, lemon juice, and sugar over ice, strain it into the chilled coupe, top it with champagne. Preferred gins? I like Tanqueray, Bombay, Sapphire Plymouth, Martin Miller's. For the bubbly, you can't go wrong with Gruet Brut. Moet and Chandon Imperial Brute or Parcet. I'm not saying that right, but no vintage, -vintage, non-vintage Cuvée 21 Brute. Uh, Non-conformists may prefer a a non-London dry gin, such as Monkey 47, Hendrix, or G-Vine. Heretics may 86 the gin altogether and substitute Cognac. I'm not doing that, okay? Uh, Again, the flavor profile, sweet, a little sour. Strength, 1 to 5. I give this a 4 as well. So, imbibe carefully our third drink the mint julep that's right the mint julep and i'd say the difficulty level of making this is about medium the mint julep's been around for over 200 years making it nearly twice as old as the world's second best bourbon infused treasure keith richards In the essential cocktail, famed bartender Dale DeGraff says the bracingly cold julep is, quote, the first internationally known American cocktail. But it wasn't always the drink we know today. When the julep debuted in the late 18th century, the drink was made with peach brandy and cognac. This is because bourbon didn't exist yet. So it makes sense, right? It wasn't until a century later that whiskey-based juleps became all the rage, particularly in the American South. The mint julep was named the official cocktail of the Kentucky Derby in 1938, and it's estimated that 125,000 of them are sold every year at Churchill Downs, contributing to Hunter S. Thompson's famous assessment of that event as, and I quote, decadent and depraved. Okay, you're going to need a 12-ounce silver beaker or a tall old-fashioned glass for this. You're going to need a muddler and a bar spoon. you put you got three ounces of bourbon, some mint, a half ounce of simple syrup, and some finely cracked ice. You muddle six mint leaves and sugar in chilled silver beaker or old-fashioned glass. Pack the glass with crushed ice. Pour the bourbon over the ice. Stir briskly. Add more ice. Stir some more. Garnish with mint leaves. If you want to shake things up a little bit you could muddle in some strawberries when they're in season and swap in some maple syrup for the simple syrup if you love the flavor but find the strength too much you can shake a julep over ice then serve it long with seltzer or iced tea uh, over ice uh the strength on this one you yeah, we'll go four for here as well we're locked in on four you go five i don't know if i'll be able to finish the show gonna be honest with you Let me have a sip here. Actually, this is my water. Mm. You got to hydrate. It's very important. Can't recommend it highly. More highly. Highly? Higher? Higherly? Higherly. Highest? Ah, Yeah. All right. Next up, the Mojito. Again, medium-level difficulty. Pulling this one off. Uh, In terms of the Mojito's history... We know it was invented in Cuba, and that's about it. The most oft-repeated origin story has the mojito refreshing the 16th century's most colorful privateer, slaver, admiral, politician, Sir Francis Drake. Apparently, the captain and his crew were plagued by dysentery and scurvy during their raids on the Spanish New World. So in Cuba, they discovered a crude form of rum, lime, sugar, and mint, and called it a cure, uh, at least for the terrible affliction of sobriety. Like all things regarding colonization of the New World, the reality is likely far more unpleasant. And if you're curious about the Mojito's fabled curative powers, bear in mind that Sir Francis Drake died of dysentery in 1596, and it couldn't have happened to a nicer slaver. History lesson aside, the Mojito is a quintessential warm weather cocktail. Why the hell am I telling you about it right now? Well, because it's still warm here in Los Angeles. It's an invigorating combination of grog and garden served with Caribbean flair. You're going to serve it in a Collins glass. You're going to need a shaker, a bar spoon, a strainer, and a muddler to make this. You, you got two ounces of white rum, an ounce of simple syrup, three quarters of an ounce of lime juice, club soda, and eight mint leaves. In this shaker, you're going to muddle the mint leaves and simple syrup. Then you add the rest of it. You shake it with ice. You strain it into a crushed, iced filled Collins glass, top with club soda, and garnish it with a mint sprig. By the way, in in Havana, they often uh, use lemon juice instead of lime. If you find this version too sweet, however, add bitters. Uh, the strength on this, I'm only going to give, um, this is only a three. I'm only going to give the mojito a three, okay? So, you can have an extra one on me. And our final drink in this installment of learning our classic cocktails is the Dark and Stormy. Thought of this because of the problems our friends in Bermuda were having, and uh, this one's an easy one to make, and, and it, it's obviously it hails from Bermuda, and it's always prepared there with the darkest Tar Local Rum, Gosling's Black Seal. Should you choose to go with another brand, please know that A, it better be a rum that can hold its own against a hefty ginger punch, and B, the Gosling's people are going to get mad if you call it a dark and stormy. In fact, in the early 1990s, Gosling's took the highly unusual step of trademarking the dark and stormy. That's right, they trademarked a cocktail. they stipulating that the drink can only be made with Gosling's black seal. Lest you think them petty, Malcolm Gosling Jr. told the New York Times a few years ago, quote, We defend that trademark vigorously, which is a very time consuming and expensive thing. That's a valuable asset that we need to protect. See, that's not petty, it's delusional. (laughs) So, um, if you were to consider using another brand of rum in the dark and stormy, and by no means am I suggesting you should. I once heard from a guy who heard from another guy that Meyers Dark Rum or Mount Gay will do the trick. But you didn't hear it from me. All right? So two ounces of rum, three ounces of ginger beer, and a quarter of lime. You pour the rum over ice in a Collins glass. You add the ginger beer. You squeeze in lime. And you know what? This one's not even that strong. I'm going to go two. Two. That's the strength you're getting. The Two. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about that, Tiffany Thiessen?
1: Hey, this is Tiffany
2: Thiessen, and you're listening to What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn.
0: That's right. Thank you. Okay. Let's get to some new products. I got to tell you about some new products, although this one's not new, but it's making a comeback, and I could not be happier about it it's Harvey's Bristol cream that's right folks the holidays are coming gotta get you some Harvey Bristol cream uh, again not new it was founded in Bristol England in 1796 okay long time ago um, by a guy named John Harvey created it um, and uh, the it's a it's a cream sherry Okay, and it's made using a blend of different styles of sherry: oloroso, PX, fino, and amontillado, aged for an average of seven years. And uh, it's so it's it's yeah it's like this mahogany color. It's got antique gold sparkles. It smells fruity, and you got raisins and caramel in there, and it's just really smooth. And I would serve it chilled, definitely. Uh, maybe with a or you know, put it over ice with a twist of orange. It's great with like fruit salad or ice cream or cheese and Harvey's Bristol Cream. It is making it back. It's making it come back. But I gotta tell you, I, what I do remember most is when I was a kid. These Harvey Brist- Bristol's cream commercials were fantastic. I, I pulled one up for you. Here we go. Michael, it's Susan. Are you gonna be home tonight? Well, I'd like to
2: leave a little something under your tree. Round eight? See you then. A few years ago, I wouldn't have dreamed of inviting myself over to Michael's place. People would have
0: said it wasn't respectable. But times have changed. And when you're giving him Harvey's Bristol Cream, it's more than respectable. It's downright upright. Harvey's Bristol Cream, for the holidays. That's amazing. And by the way, do you appreciate that it went mono there? One ear. I'd like to switch things up a little bit here on the show, just for you. Harvey's Pistol Cream is out there. What is it? 30 bucks a bottle? Something like that? Go get it. Yeah. $24.99. $24.99. Can't beat it. Uh, if that's not your thing, maybe you're a whiskey person. So I'm going to tell you about, uh, I had a dinner recently at a place in LA that's fantastic called Republic, Republic. And I had dinner with the master blender of the Glendronic, Rachel Barry. She's fantastic. And we were there because they were debuting two new limited releases. Uh, cast strength batch eight and a master vintage 1993 new just arrived here in the united states okay so you know the glendronic is one of the oldest licensed distilleries in scotland it's a highland style scotch that means it's complex full-bodied it's a it's it's, it's just perfect for a slow aging in spanish uh sherry oak um it's been around since 1826, the Glendronic, and uh, it ages its whiskey, as I said, in, in, in Pedro Jimenez and Oloroso sherry cast from Spain. These new uh, these new expressions that I'm telling you about, um, they marry Highland spirit with the oak. Okay, the uh, what do we got? Okay. We got the Glendronic Cask Strength Batch 8. It retails for $95. It's 61% alcohol by volume. I made some notes when I tasted it. It smells like sandalwood and uh, Colombian coffee. That's what I was getting. Some honey and cocoa and Brazilian nuts. I tasted mocha and caramel macchiato and cherry chocolate cake. I think I had cherry chocolate cake afterwards, too, so it could have been that. Um... There are also some dates and plum and raisins and it was delicious. Um, and then the master vintage in 1993, you can get that for somebody you really love cause it's $350 a bottle. Okay. Uh, 48.2% alcohol smells like walnuts and raisin bread and fruitcake. cake. the taste I'm getting coffee and Rioche uh, twisted baked orange rind and I got a little bit of prune in there too And the finish was just long and velvety and there was some cocoa and pecan I liked it um, What else That's the two new products. I'm going to tell you about That's all I got this week um, So we should probably get to uh, the first Of the two little interviews we got here. They're not long ones. They're short ones, but they're but they're powerful Okay, they're powerful interviews um first up i went uh those of you who listen to the show know i was in kentucky not long ago did a bunch of interviews there and I, when i was there i talked to uh michael voltaggio uh, michael is the winner of the sixth season of top chef uh you know he's a very a lot of tattoos cool motherfucker um he opened a place out here it's not here anymore but uh, it was called ink I mean, they opened it in 2011 and GQ named it the best new restaurant in America. Uh, uh, Michael did that with his brother, Brian. They've got a bunch of restaurants now and he's going to talk about some of them. One of them, uh, Estuary in D.C., a fantastic spot, but he'll he'll tell you about that. And then we get joined by uh, by Adam Sobel, uh, who among many, many things was the chef de cuisine at Restaurant Guy Savoy. We've got two Michelin stars. He, then he was working with Michael Mina, and he was crowned the king of pork at the Grand Cochon in Aspen. And he has a place called Asteria Calamare in Los Angeles right now. And so I chatted up those two cats, and uh, here it is. So I'm sitting here with uh, one of the finest chefs America's ever produced, uh, old friend. He was on my old show on Sirius XM years ago before Sirius got smart and kicked me off the air. It's Michael Voltaggio. How are you, brother?
3: I'm so stoked to be here right now.
0: Man, so you so you, like, you came into prominence first off on Top Chef, and then you basically had some of the hottest restaurants in Los Angeles. Going for years, and now you're kind of doing like it. What are you doing right now? What do you got a little? So I just,
3: uh, my brother and I actually got together and opened a couple restaurants in uh, the Maryland D.C. area, which is where we grew up. So we've just opened Estuary at the Conrad Hotel, which is Hilton's like luxury brand, and we opened that in the city center of Washington D.C. a few months back. And then prior to that, we opened Voltaggio Brothers Steakhouse with MGM, and that's on National Harbor uh, in Maryland. Now that those restaurants are stabilized, I'm back in Los Angeles and uh, working on my next project.
0: Yeah. Got a lot going on, man. You, um, by the way, I don't know of any other chef that has more tattoos. Do you, do you have like a go-to tat artist? You just get them everywhere.
3: Uh, there's a shop in L.A. called Shamrock, right on Sunset. Oh,
0: Michael uh, Mark
3: Mahoney's Mark shop. Mark Mahoney, one of most. Me, yeah, yeah, that, that's the shop. I mean, if you're gonna go get tattooed, also Lincoln Tattoo Company down in Venice, uh, right on Lincoln Boulevard. Okay. Um, Great shop as well. Jason Stores is the artist there. All
0: right, I'm like, that's right by. That's right in my hood. I live right over there. So
3: a brand new shop, beautiful. Uh, The artist is amazing, and uh, yeah, it's good. West Coast vibes for sure.
0: Are you a uh, big whiskey drinker?
3: I do like to cook with bourbon. Okay. I and for me, it's. uh, I don't love. Sweeter liquids For some reason But I love desserts And things like that But I also love Taking bourbon And making things Like steak sauce out of it Or caramelizing onions With it So Um, how would
0: you Quickly though How would you make A steak sauce with bourbon?
3: I would reduce down A whole bunch of Caramelized onions Raisins, garlic Shallots um, Deglaze it with bourbon Cook all that down together And then just Blend everything up A little bit of soy sauce A little Worcestershire And uh, put it on your steak
0: How'd you come to cooking man? Like what How'd you get to it?
3: I was about 15 years old. Uh, my brother had a job, and he was coming home with stuff. Like, he was buying stuff. And I'm like, I want to buy stuff, too. Like, he's got new clothes. He's got all this, you know, cool stuff. And uh, it was about just making money, you know? I, I We grew up in a pretty moderate uh, household. Um, our parents definitely made sure that we, we earned our keep, you know what I'm saying? So, for me, uh, it started out like that. But then I was in high school, and I had a full-time job, and I played football. So, I would go to school to practice to work and this so I was already doing like 16 hour days when I was like 15, 16 years old and then I found myself enjoying the work part of it the most
0: and uh, oh look who's here you want to jump in we have a special guest here. Uh, sir, will you introduce yourself or can you after the party that we had last night? You want to jump on that Chef,
2: one? Chef this is Chef Woody. Barrel aged Woody. <laughs> Barrel aged Woody here, also known as Adam Sobel. Adam, how are you, man? I'm doing um, well. Full
0: disclosure, everybody out there, we were we were out last night. I think we were we were we were partaking
2: in the all that the Kentucky nightlife had Anywhere? to offer last night, yeah. A little crusty today. This is heaven, uh, <laughs> and then to be able to spend time with friends, to cook, to make delicious, to entertain—it's you know. Where, where did awesome. you two? Where did you two meet? Ah, great story. This is a great story, actually. Michael and I have known each other since we're 17 years old. Get out of here! I will not get out of here. All right, tell so me the story. You're from, New, li- York. from He's New York. I'm from Maryland. Our mentors were best friends. Yep. So um, Peter Timmons and John Johnstone. Uh, came up together in in um, in Scotland and Ireland and uh, they worked together in in Europe for um, for Marco Pierre White and a few other in like some great hotels anyway they, they came to the States Peter went to uh, oh they both went to the Greenbrier actually uh, Peter was the executive chef of the Greenbrier and Johnstone was there as well Mike, Ended up doing his apprenticeship at the Greenbrier Hotel with Peter Timmons, and I. And you're 17 years old at the time. 18. 18. 18 okay. Yeah, I was 19, 17. 19, I worked for John Johnstone at the Piping Rock Club, and I was a his apprentice I was his apprentice for the uh, British Culinary Olympic team. Johnstone was big into um, competition, and so was Peter, and um, we ended up facing off at the New York Restaurant Show, the Jacob Javits Center, and we hated each other. <laughs> We were, we were, we, we <laughs> didn't know, even know each other, but we were like, oh, fuck. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, a rivalry going this, you know, but I anyway, say, fuck, it's okay. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, um, it's an amazing thing. We were, we've been tied, we've been linked for many, many years and then we didn't really know each other. And then years later we got reintroduced when Mike was doing Top Chef in Las Vegas. Uh, we reconnected and, um, and it's unbelievable. We we're, were cut from the same cloth, the same, um, classical training you know michael has um people think michael uh, michael's known for his avant-garde kind of forward-thinking um kind of cutting-edge cuisine but he's a classically trained chef and the only way you can cook that way and and make it delicious is if you have been trained properly and, and have come through the ranks and um and that's the thing that we we always connect that we we can always fall back on our roots and we have so much um so much respect for the history and the craft and um you know our worlds are very similar you know the
3: grind is the same across all of those disciplines and i think that we find ourselves pushing ourselves to the limits on every level and i think when you come to a place like this and you see like-minded people doing different things in their field just like you guys are here grinding um late nights and early mornings and and I'm just. We're very fortunate to be here, and I, I'm happy that Bourbon and Beyond invited us down here for sure.
0: So, hey, I know you guys are busy. You got to get up on stage. I want to thank Michael Boltaggio and Adam Sobel, two not, not only world famous, world class chefs, but two seriously badass individuals. And I thank you for taking time to talk to us. Always great to see you. And, thank you so uh, we'll much. Be some, really we'll be doing appreciate some it. Bourbon later.
3: We will. Uh, we will drink some bourbon later. All
0: right, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Adam. You just keep on crying I got that song in my head How did this happen? You know it? Stephen Bishop is the name it's a- Lost in the sewer She's in love with old Sam Taken from the fire Into the frying pan On and on She just keeps on trying yeah. And she smiles when she feels like crying the part in the song when he farts. That's really good. Anyway, thanks to Michael Voltagione, Adam Sobel, chatting with me, having a chat my way. This is a quick one with Ed Lee. It's really like a, really not even a chat. It's like a mini, it's a snippet with Ed, who's really a, one of the, you know, just a fun dude and an amazing Chef, he wrote. Uh, he's got a couple books out: "Smoking and Pickles" and his latest is "Buttermilk Graffiti." He won a James Beard Award for that book. He owns uh, 610, 610 Magnolia Milkwood, the whiskey dry in Louisville, Kentucky. He's got Succotash in Maryland, Penn Quarter, Washington D.C. He's been on TV a bunch. Uh, he he uh, got an Emmy nomination for the show "The Mind of a Chef." Um, And he wrote a documentary And was in it called Fermented He's great Deadly And there's just a little tiny bit there With Eddie Boy Here you go You do a lot of TV You do a lot of that kind of stuff yeah. do, do you enjoy that more? Do you, do you miss being in the kitchen as much? Or, or
1: rather No, I hate TV I'm very awkward and shy No, okay. I don't know No, I like You know it, You're it's, good it's... on TV That's I'm... for sure, yeah It's 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 uh... Listen, in this modern age, in media, and like, you know, I'm doing this podcast, like, like, it's, it's a part of the business now, you know? When I was starting in the business, it didn't, it didn't exist. And now it's like, you have to do it. So, you know, listen, if, if someone is, uh, gracious enough to ask me to do something for TV, I'll do it, you know, like, (laughs) like, but I have to have control. Like, I, I only do things where I can sort of control the outcome and, and say what I have to say.
0: You want to have you Creatively you got to yeah. make sure it's, it's it's on par with what
1: you yeah. What you want to put yeah. forth I mean everyone can get a show Not everyone But there's a lot of things you can do And it's kind of uh, um, You know There's a lot of things you can do That, that, that aren't what you want to say You know yeah. If you want to be on TV And, and for me it's like Listen my restaurants are my passion. My restaurants are where I live and breathe and, and, and make my money. I only do TV and, and radio and whatever if I want to. And, and, you know, that's a luxury, and I'm glad I can do that. But I really haven't, you know, I want to teach people how to cook. I want them to get into food. Uh, and that's my mission.
0: And all and on, she just keeps on crying. And she smiles when she feels like crying. enough of that okay that was ed lee and um yeah what else we got oh i'm bringing back i'm bringing it back some people wrote me and they're like why don't you do the uh more of the what's driving me to drink and you know i am nothing if not compliant i'd like to make people happy and so we'll bring it back it's driving me to drink what's driving me to drink this week you want to know okay fine fucking tell you stop pushing me we're gonna do uh, leisure liquor okay leisure liquor and um i let me tell you how this came about i i was cleaning out my liquor stash i got a lot of booze and i had to get rid of some of it unfortunately i, I know you're like why didn't you call me dan i would have taken it so i found something that i got a long time ago from southern comfort it's called fiery pepper okay it was a combination of their you know the southern comfort it's that peach and whiskey flavored liqueur and tabasco sauce so i looked it up i was like what is this and uh, some vp at, at southern comfort uh said quote he believed that it will challenge consumer senses and fire up the night what he neglected to add in Was uh, and possibly induce a nasty case of morning after fire ass, okay? Mass-produced infusions are nothing new. And I have stated on this show I'm not a fan by any stretch, but I understand their utility in the marketplace as well as the consumer appeal, especially among entry-level drinkers who don't know any better. But the Southern Comfort brand had always maintained at least a modicum of street cred among serious drinkers. And so my first thought When I tasted this fiery, and I did, I tasted it, this fiery pepper was, why did they do this? And my next thought was, when the hell did I become the Andy Rooney of Booze Reportage? So I'm not saying that mixing SoCo with Tabasco is a bad idea. On the contrary, it has a little bit of appeal, that pairing. Particularly if you happen to be, say, in a fraternity at Mississippi State. What I... Am saying is that the existence of a product that uh, such as this, it suggests that there are an alarming number of truly lazy sods in this world. It's not like hot sauce is prohibitively expensive or hard to find, right? I think most reasonable people would agree that spicing up the hooch yourself with a dash or two straight from the bottle beats a prefab blend whipped up in some laboratory somewhere. So that pretty much leaves convenience as Fiery Pepper's only reason to exist. It's a product that was targeted at the hordes of feeble mouth breathers who were apparently so fucking indolent that the amount of exertion required to shake a goddamn bottle of Tabasco is too much to handle. Now Make no mistake, these booze-swilling sloths, that's what they are. They're out there. In force, how else to explain the enormous popularity of Bud Light Lime, ready-made rum and coke, and the Coors Light cold activated can, which turns blue to let you know when you've officially stopped trying. A core principle of salesmanship is convincing people they need something that they, in fact, do not need. The more shit we covet, the more cash the shit-sheller's pocket. So you can bet your snuggies and your clappers and your dust mop slippers that our opportunistic corporate enablers will continue to do everything in their power to facilitate our languorous slouch toward inertness. We're living in an age defined by the marketing slogan. There's an app for that. And it stands to reason that unless we resist the temptation to allow computers and gadgets and booze companies to do everything for us, we're destined to become the lazy and stupid leisure addicts from the space station in Wally. Remember that movie? I say enough is enough. Thanks, but no thanks, Anheuser Busch. I can squeeze my own damn lime into my beer. And we can trust our senses to determine when the optimum drinking temperature has been reached. Oh, Steaming me up really is. As for the Southern comfort, well, interestingly enough, doing this uh, has helped me to discover a newfound appreciation for a spirit that, frankly, I've neglected for many years. I'm not talking about the fiery pepper expression, mind you. I'm talking about the original Soko served the way God intended in an Alabama slammer. It's a drink that gives you all the drunk with only half the morning after fire ass. And with that, I, I don't know if there's anything more to say, you know? I mean, that's kind of what you got. So, I want to thank Ed Lee, Michael Voltaggio, Adam Sobel. I want to thank you, Follow me on the Instagram, at The Inbiber. I'm also on Twitter under the same handle. And I want to remind you, the hard part about being a bartender is figuring out who is drunk and who's just stupid.